You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 167th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, we are concluding the conversation about couples with Sarah Swenson. Sarah is a licensed psychotherapist, having obtained her master's degree in counseling from Seattle University. She did her clinical training at the University of Washington Harborview Medical Health Services in Seattle. The focus of her clinical practice is supporting the needs of neurodiverse couples. She also specializes in working with high intelligence. Sarah is a member of Mensa, as well as several professional associations related to her psychotherapy practice. She offers courses for continuing education to therapists to help them understand and work with neurodiverse couples. Sarah also gives presentations at professional conferences. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Are you ready to get started? Ready to go. We probably should start by defining what exactly a neurodiverse couple is. That's exactly where I start when I work with couples. Oftentimes, it's the neuro, what we call the neurotypical partner who contacts me. When we have our first couple session, that is the first thing we do. What does neurodiversity mean? Who's neurodivergent? Who isn't? And what's a neurodiverse couple? The word neurodiversity is popping up more and more. You probably see it and hear it more often now than you did even five years ago. It started out by a psychologist whose name is Judy Singer, who was looking for a word to describe what she viewed as normal variety in the neurotype, the way that the brain is structured and how it responds to the world. She created that word neurodiverse, neurodiversity, to accommodate all these differences that included autism, included ADHD, etc., When I use the word neurodiverse, I'm specifically talking about a couple in which one partner is autistic or may be autistic, and the other partner is what we call neurotypical. Neurotypical means the dominantly presenting neurotype. In other words, the most common kind of brain is neurotypical. Neurotypical doesn't mean normal. It means most common. Autistic, there's about globally maybe 2-3% of global population that is autistic. Autism shows up in the brain physically. There's a physical difference in the autistic brain when compared to the neurotypical brain. And those differences create differences in the way that individuals perceive the world and the way they respond to it. On their own, they're intact. On their own, they're fine. It's when they interact that the differences are pronounced and the challenges arise. The challenges that a neurodiverse couple experiences are very much like the challenges any couple experiences, but there's an additional layer that has to do with these neurotype differences, and that shows up primarily in communication. Obviously, goes into all the other parts of the relationship. What's affected by communication challenges? intimacy, feeling heard, feeling any kind of a deep connection with the partner that you've chosen, feeling respected. So all of these other parts of ourselves that we expect to be reflected accurately in our partner 
they're not reflected the way we expect them to be in a neurodiverse relationship. You mentioned that there's a physical difference in the brain of someone who is autistic. I'm curious how that manifests. How does that show up? That's something that will show up on a functional MRI. When you have two individuals, a neurotypical individual and an autistic individual wired up for functional MRI, and you provide the same stimulus to both, you can visualize that on the functional MRI. See that on the screen. What you see is that different areas of the brain light up at different times to different degrees. The resonant imaging shows you the differences in what's going on in the brain. And then on autopsy, frankly, there are structural differences that you can see as well. Different parts of the brain are different sizes between, say, the neurotypical and the autistic. A brain is like a fingerprint, right? There's no two brains that are the same. But again, when we're talking types, you can see the difference between yes. the neurotype that we call neurotypical and the neurotype we call autistic. You can see the differences. I also liked how you made the distinction between normal and most common. I think that that's a really good distinction. So thank you for that. Sure. As you talk about this neurodiverse couple, you mentioned communication, but how are their challenges different from those of more common couples? In many ways, they're not different on the face of it. And that's where couples have challenging relationships with therapists, because most therapists aren't trained to recognize a neurodiverse couple when they're seeing one in their counseling room. The problem is that our counseling models are predicated on the needs of neurotypical partners, neurotypical relationships, and they don't work for neurodiverse couples because they generally are insight-based and emotion-focused. To talk about the difference here, those are the two, those are two areas of great challenge for the autistic partner because of the differences in the brain that we were talking about a minute ago. One of the areas when relating to a neurotypical person that is a challenge for an autistic person is identifying by name the emotions. Let's just say he, for the moment, our language is not very forgiving, but let's say that he's feeling something, he knows that. But there's a timing difference between his ability to identify the emotion and bring it to language and be able to talk about it. It takes time. It's a more linear progression. Whereas for a neurotypical person, it's a much more rapid, intuition-informed, almost immediate, I feel this, I say this. I'm neurotypical myself. We feel our feelings and they come out of our mouth identified practically with no gap. Whereas there's a process involved for the autistic person who has to say, oh, you're asking me what I'm feeling? And he's feeling a lot of stuff. So what happens in conversation is, let's say the woman is neurotypical, the man is autistic. The woman says, well, what do you feel about that? Because I'm thinking this and I'm feeling this. And so she's going on and on about it, expecting all the additional information that she's giving him is helping him understand what she means. When in fact, she's just flooding him with superfluous information because he still hasn't figured out the first thing, which is how are you feeling? While he's trying to figure that out, she's keeping going, thinking she's adding. And they're just going in two opposite directions. She's getting frustrated because he's not saying anything. And he's getting anxious because he's not saying anything. 
in the autistic person, that anxiety rises, and that's where you can get what people call meltdowns. But it really is anxiety has risen to such a place that the brain just sort of whited out and there's nothing there. And that person needs to stop and reset like a computer has to reset to clear that all out. But the neurotypical partner is really frustrated because she's not getting what she needs. That's the kind of thing that can happen. It happens in a lot of different ways. When I talk to couples about this pattern, the first thing we say is slow down. When your way of communicating is to create a web and your way of communicating is to build a path, those two things have very different. The web can go very fast and the path can take longer. So how are you going to communicate? Because you hear things the way you say them. The web builder over here is expecting a web back and the path builder is expecting a path back and it's not happening. The first thing we do, as I said, is slow down. So we take one thing at a time. If she, for example, says, how do you feel about this? If she can understand that he can do it if he's got the time and space, that she needs to create that space. She needs to be able to say, okay, I can wait a minute. I can wait until you respond. And then he is going to feel safe enough to take time he needs, which is going to give him the ability to do what she's asking, which is identify his place. Slowing down is the first thing that we do. That is so fascinating because it reminds me of extroverts and introverts and the extra processing time that introverts need to be able to provide a response. I'm wondering if you see similarities between introverts and someone who is labeled autistic. The behaviors are very similar. They look the same. The reasons for them are very different. And that's what's important about the counseling piece, too. You can look at the behaviors. And if you're in a traditional counseling mode, you're going to see behaviors and interpret them the way we learn to interpret behaviors. And it's going to be wrong with a neurodiverse couple for reasons that have to do with many things. But but one of the challenges is in the very literal use of language. An autistic person tends to perceive language literally. A non-autistic person communicates with a great deal of body language and all kinds of other techniques. And, you know, the estimates are 30% for the literal content of communication. But the meaning of our words, about 30%, what we say, the rest of it is imbued by all this other information, which is our body language and our tone of voice, all that other affect. It's also included in exaggeration and hyperbole. When we rely on the denotated value of what we're saying to communicate, like if you say, you always do that, you're not really saying you do that every time. You're saying, it's my sense that you do this often enough that I want to talk about it. That's what you're going to hear if you're neurotypical, and that's what I'm going to mean if I'm neurotypical. But an autistic person is going to say, no, I do not always do that. And then you might hear examples of when he doesn't do that. Well, he's acting in good faith. He really thinks he's clearing the air here. She's going to be exasperated because she knows that he doesn't always do it, even though that's what she said. He can look as if he's being really obstructionist and pedantic, when in fact, that's not the case. As an autistic person, he has very specific understanding of language, and he is actually being literal and saying, well, no, I don't always do that because there are times when I do this. So if she blows up, he really isn't going to understand that. He's telling her his truth, and she's denying it. That's one example of what it looks like on the outside, and it, but it's recently comes from a different place. And with regard specifically to your question about introversion, 
Introverts are those who recharge in private. Their energy is taken in communication. That can look very similar to the autistic need to reset because for an autistic person to have this kind of conversation with a neurotypical person is exhausting. It's exhausting to be in the neurotypical world. The exhaustion is the reason for the need to have them the time out to, to kind of reset. It's a slightly different reason for the same, yep. what looks like the same behavior. It makes me wonder if I've ever misinterpreted someone as an introvert who actually has autism. Sure, it's possible because it can look very similar. Yeah. It also makes me wonder how these two people get together. How did they date? Some of these issues had to exist as they were getting to know one another. That's one of the questions that couples ask too. They ask that. When we got together, we decided to get married. And now we can't even figure out why we did that. There's a couple of things here that is actually a, a very, this is actually where part of the compassion for this work arises. If you can imagine a young man coming of age, autistic, but undiagnosed. He has his whole life been trying to figure out how to navigate a world that he doesn't quite understand. And he's got a history of feeling like he doesn't get it. And he misses the mark sometimes and not very confident in a lot of ways. Might even have a history of being bullied. One of the resources that he utilizes is film and literature and movies. There's a lot he learns about, obviously, the people around him watching their behavior and then watching movies, interpreting it autistically, but at least watching it and getting that those behaviors. So if you think about our movies, for example, 90% of our films are about the chase, the encounter and the I like him, does he like me? How do we date? How do we navigate? How do we get together because we're attracted? What do we do? There's a lot of information to model in that category, that recommitment category. There's a lot of acting involved in being autistic. That's oftentimes called masking, but it really is just a matter of imitating behaviors and thinking you understand the reason for them. And in the early phases of a relationship, that dating behavior looks like dating behavior. And so the neurotypical person reads it as neurotypical because she's seen the same movies, so it looks the same. Surprisingly often, actually on the wedding night, things change. It's very tender because if you think about it, our movies, once people are married, all of a sudden the focus is on the dysfunctional relationships. It's on people who are at each other's throats or who have a very terrible relationship or who are cheating on each other. All of a sudden, all this positive modeling disappears in the committed relationship, having a family, etc. Very little happy family, happy couple data for the autistic partner to draw from. All of a sudden, he realizes he doesn't have that intuitive ability to read the situation that he's been relying on the modeling. And it's very painful. It's very difficult. It appears to the neurotypical partner that the autistic partner is kind of giving up or lost interest or something when in fact he's not. He's very ardent about staying in the relationship, but his toolbox really diminished. Over time, that stress builds and the anxiety builds and the partners just feel very siloed and separate and somewhat desperate to to reconnect. That's where you come in. What are the primary goals that are often articulated in your work with neurodiverse couples? I know you talked about giving space to process. Are there others? When I work with couples, the first thing we do is make sure that we're using the same language. 
We start with a psychoeducation model and we go through what does it mean to be autistic, which is what everybody thinks is the missing piece in a neurodiverse couple. And actually, the bigger missing piece is what does it mean to be neurotypical? That's the unexamined part of the relationship because this is a neurotypical world. It's the neurotypical partner whose assumptions and expectations are invisible to her and everybody else because they feel shared in the community at large. We learn a lot about autism, but we sometimes forget to look at the other side. So we spend a lot of time looking at both sides, making sure each partner understands his own or her own neurotype and where the differences arise. And then that education piece threads throughout all the work. The goals of our work are pretty clear. We start with with a fundamental question, what can change and what can't? When we first start looking at what can change, the first commitment has to be, are you both willing to undertake what is required in order to make the changes? Because you're each going to be asked to do things that aren't going to come naturally to you. You're going to have to develop new habits. Uh It takes a commitment and it takes an understanding of how habits are built. You don't just do something once, you do something a thousand times, and then it's ingrained. But when you start seeing the positive results of making the changes, there's a lot of reinforcement for sticking with it. I think we do a lot of work on this specific challenge apart a couple's talking about. We pin this to real-life experience. It's not just thinking, because if you just think about it, you're not going to be able to apply it when a situation arises. It has to be meaningful in a couple's own life. No two sessions are the same. No two couples are the same. We look at what can change and then what can't change. And some things can't change. The literal versus that path building versus that web building orientation, those aren't going to change. Oftentimes it's said that the autistic person sees the tree and then another tree and then another tree and then decides if you have enough individual trees, you have a forest. Whereas the neurotypical person says, oh, there's a forest. Oh, look at all these little trees. I see they're all different. That's another very different way of looking at things. That's not going to change. And the implications of that are what can change and what can We work through that. And then we get to another place after we've done a lot of work together. Then there's two more questions. And those questions are, what can you live with? Here's the wiggle room. How much grace can you extend to your partner, assuming you're both acting in good faith, to try and help yourselves and each other get closer? And how much can you overlook? How much can you understand that the human condition is such that we all mess up? We all do it. We don't mean to hurt each other, but we do. And then we get to the next question, which is really the end point of the work I do with couples, which is a pyramid almost that we build. You get to the top of that pyramid and the question becomes, what can't I live without? Mm. Both partners, after looking at all of these things, there's going to always be that residue over here that hasn't been addressed or ameliorated. Oftentimes for the neurotypical partner, for example, there's an underlying feeling of loneliness is persistent. And if that feeling is something that she can't live without correcting, she has to figure something out. She still has work to do. And what do we do? Because I can't get that and I need it. And then for him, is there an end point here on the degree of exhaustion I'm expected to reach when I'm doing everything I can all the time? Am I ever going to be able to sit on the porch and look out the window and just be? Or is this constant demand of change and paying attention going to rob me of that piece? That's when it gets pretty practical. Well, people think, well, if we can't do it, do we have to get divorced? 
And I always say, no, that's a pretty binary and unnecessarily binary way to look at it. Married and divorced. There's a whole lot of change possible between those two points. Many couples are able successfully to reconfigure their relationships. There's a full spectrum of possibilities. Loving roommates, two apartments or two homes, same house with a schedule of one there. There's a lot of possibility that honors the love they feel for each other, but also honors individual needs that they just plain can't meet together. Ultimately, it's positive work, and sometimes there's a bittersweet component to it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned developing new habits. I'm imagining their skills and strategies that couples need to learn to improve their communication. Can you share some of those? Sure. One of the examples that we use repeatedly points to something that I call the misinterpretation of someone else's intention assigning motives that are not accurate. You know, I think you did this because of this, and I'm not acting according to what you said. I'm acting according to what I think you meant by what you said. You think I can never do anything right, that kind of thing, when that's not what you said, but that's what it feels like. First of all, nobody can read anybody else's mind, and yet we act as if we think we can consistently. Underneath that is your expectations and your assumptions. That's the muddy area, because oftentimes those aren't conscious. It's a call to consciousness for both partners to be aware of not only of that tendency, but also how often they do it, and how often that's the thing that gets conversations off the rail right away. So we use a model sentence, which is, if I did that, it would mean this. What does it mean if you do it? Or if I said that, I would mean this. What do you mean when you say it? Often it's, a, it's an eye-opener because right away a couple discover that they're not at the same starting point, but they can get to the same starting point by looking at that statement. They avoid a lot of conflict. We use that concept over and over again until it becomes a pattern at the beginning of conversations. The goal, of course, is to avoid that reactive cycle that creates such a bad feeling for both partners. I almost think neurotypical couples could use that same question. I really like that. I don't think it would hurt anybody. That's right. The second thing that we do has to do with the meaning of words. It's analogous to this or parallel to it. If you've ever used or visualized one of those charts, it's of emotion that starts in the center with the big words like angry, happy, sad. And then it goes out into more nuanced, shaded meanings that come off each of those words. What we find is that the most autistic individuals use those big words, whereas the neurotypical partner has a much better fluency out in the more nuanced region of that circle. But the autistic person, if he's only using five words, for example, is going to misconstrue her emotion with amazing irregularity because mm-hmm. they're frustrated and he thinks she's angry right away. And they're not talking about the same thing. So I encourage neurotypical partners specifically to articulate specifically what they're feeling or how using as much language as they can about something and then making sure that they're talking about the same thing making sure that he understands specifically what she's trying to say. He needs to give her the time to do that with the understanding that he's likely to jump to conclusions just as quickly as she is, the two-way street. But then for him, sometimes it's very difficult to read the emotion, even with language. 
And he doesn't know what to do when he does read it. That's when I recommend this question for the autistic partner, which is, do you need me to listen? Do you need me to respond? Or do you need a hug? If the neurotypical partner can answer that, that does two things. It obviously guides his behavior, but it also helps him see what to focus on when she's talking, which is part of the challenge for him. If she starts to talk, he first has to figure out what is she talking about, and she's moving along further. He's still not sure what she's talking about. So that question is really helpful, too. I like that, too. Again, for neurotypical couples, it's not a bad question. It could be useful there as well, but absolutely essential for the neurodiverse couple. Mm -hmm. You have such passion for this work, and there's so few of you who do this work. I'm wondering, what led you to it? What is your motivation? When I started my practice many years ago as a private practitioner in Seattle, I opened my practice in the South Lake Union neighborhood on the lake in the area that is where we find all the big tech companies. I started working with individuals of high intelligence. When we start our practices, we ask ourselves, well, what do I know about and where can I be the most helpful? I felt comfortable with working with high intelligence. And so my clients started coming from all these tech companies. And instead of talking about what was on their minds, what they wanted to talk about was their relationship, their intimate relationships, and why they were struggling so much. And they wanted to bring their partner in for couple work. What I recognized over time was that, as I suspected when we started working with the couples, these individuals were coming in were autistic, and that the differences between them were a question of neurodiversity rather than the garden variety challenge that all couples face. Because, as I said, I have experience with autism, and also, of course, I'm neurotypical myself, I was able to manage that work effectively, and it became the focus of my practice. And I realized this was quite a while ago that I started doing this when there were really just a handful of us. Now there are a lot more, but I still have the deep passion for the work because it's a very underserved population, even to this day. Yeah, I believe that. I hate to say this, but we're coming to the end of our time. So I want to give you the opportunity to add anything we didn't get a chance to talk about if there's something you'd like to share. Primarily that neurodiverse couples can have hope that with a deeper understanding of their differences, they can find ways to build connections and bridges between themselves that can lead them to the kind of connection that they want and rekindle the kind of intimacy that can rekindle possibilities for increased sex life as well. So don't give up hope unless you've really come to the conclusion that there's nothing that can help you. Working with somebody who understands neurodiversity can really help. Great. Thank you for that. Do you have anything coming up you'd like to tell our audience about? I would like to mention that I, as much as I would like to work with every couple who contact me, I'm, I'm not able to do that. And so I have created a new platform on Substack where I write articles. I've got a new podcast that I've started on it. There are tips and resources and in the near future, we'll be able to have group sessions to talk about things that appeal to individuals and couples want to talk about. You can find that at Substack. If you go to my website, which is the neurodiversecouple.com, it's linked there. And that's a good place to start. My website has a great deal of information. But I really recommend it. I'm, I'm very excited about this new project. My goal is to disseminate as much clinically sound, helpful guidance and support as I can. Sounds like a legacy you're building. Hopefully. 
I think that's terrific. If anyone wanted to contact you for more information, would you tell them start at the website or is there another way? The website's the best place, theneurodiversecouple.com. My contact information for direct email is there, but the link's also to the Substack and to the longer courses there. I have, I think, three three-hour courses that are already available for neurodiverse couples. But yes, start at the website. Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes. I really appreciate you joining us today, Sarah. It's been a fascinating conversation on a topic that I know very little about. So thank you so much for sharing a bit about your work. Well, thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to meet you and definitely a pleasure to have this conversation. Well, the pleasure is mine. Thank you, Sarah. Mm I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when we'll be shifting to a conversation on leadership with Lindsay Dowd. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.